Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be talking about church tradition and the magisterium. Now, it's going to be a little bit different than what this might imply. You see, I won't be going through all the history or all the scripture. This is, in fact, the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. It's not about that. Instead, we're going to try to take a different tact. We're going to try to cut through a lot of the normal disagreement with a little bit of creativity. And I think I have some creative ways to, to come about this and a lot of good examples. Um, but first, I listened to some of my recent episodes and, uh, well, I've been a bit of a low-energy jeb lately. You see, I'm building a house. And by building, I don't mean having someone else build it. I mean building it myself. And uh, foundation time is a wee bit tiring. So sometimes when I sit down to do the podcast, I'm a little bit wiped. But back and better than ever, highly caffeinated and ready to give you a quality episode. Another reason I'm pumped today is because Roe versus Wade might be ending. This is extraordinarily exciting. I do have an episode on abortion if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, but yeah, we're very excited here about this decision. We definitely need to take down every barrier we can um, in order to protect life. And right now, we, we can't protect life because that's federally illegal in many ways. But Roe versus Wade may be leaving us. And uh, before long, who knows? Maybe we'll no longer have all of these uh, baby sacrifices to Moloch polluting our land. Um, I'll leave you with one very simple argument. What I like to bring up is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is always wrong. This, in conversation, seems to be the most effective tact because it's very easy to defend those premises. It is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Of course you can defend it's alive. Well, if it wasn't alive, then why would you have to kill it? Why would you have to abort it? Um, and of course, every philosophical and scientific definition of life would include the, um, the child in the womb. Human is easy. Human parents, human DNA, and following a normal human life cycle. Innocent is easy because it doesn't even have the capacity to ever have done anything wrong, especially anything warranting death. And if you're going to disagree with this, you just sound like a monster. You have to admit that, no, I don't think it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. So sometimes I can shock people awake. So that's my favorite argument. Um, I think it's pretty simple. I think it covers things pretty clearly. And you'll notice I put innocent in there because I am a strong and vocal proponent of the death penalty. And um, we have episodes on that too. Also, in the other episode <laughs> on annihilationism, I noticed sometimes I do review these episodes, you know, and oftentimes I make mistakes and I just keep on going, but I do feel like I needed to address something. I offered two verses in defense of the annihilationist position and laid out those arguments, I think, pretty strongly before I got to my philosophical reasons. But we can never just disregard what scripture says, so I'm going to address those really quick here. One of the verses I brought up was John 3.16, which, uh, which contrasts eternal life to perishing, which implies that perishing means you don't have eternal life. And if you don't have eternal life, that means that, well, your life stopped, i.e. you perished, right? So doesn't that support of annihilationism? Well, prima facie, I would say, yeah, I totally get that reading. And this is one of the reasons I included it in this podcast. 
there's a problem with just going from Scripture. We also need to understand that in context, in the way it was meant, um, to what those hearers understood. We, we need not just the knowledge of the words, we need wisdom about their meaning. And I think that this doesn't mean that they will have their existence withdrawn, but instead that you will be in an eternal state of death. And I think we've all experienced that with sin, that we get closer and closer to non-being, that we indeed perish. But we can talk about people who have perished, people who have gone before, and we're not talking about people who have ceased to be altogether. We know that their souls continue. Um, all right. The other one that I brought up was that God, um, um, God can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, I think that God's destruction of the soul is different from the removal of being from the soul. Destruction doesn't always imply complete annihilation. In the Old Testament, we have cities which are said to be destroyed, but it doesn't mean that they're removed from being. It just means that they're changed in form. Um, nothing in our knowledge actually full-scale drops out of being. We, we have the conservation of matter and energy. So whatever that means, I don't think it means this new and novel means of going out of existence, which is contrary to the author and the audience's um, current understanding of things changing in form but not dropping out of being. So yes, I think when you go to hell, you change in form. You become something that's not recognizable to us today because you've had all the graces of God withdrawn. Um, but yeah, I don't think you drop out of being. So that's how I understand those two verses. Um, do, do, do. Yeah, I see the one on the Tower of Babel. That one's fairly popular. I liked that one. I ended it and think and thought, wow, I have so more, many more things I wanted to say but didn't get around to it. So maybe I'll hit that too. A lot of these podcasts are like that. For instance, Holy Week. Um, that was a fun episode. And a lot of people listen to it, so I'll try to do more like that. But it had nothing to do with the actual talk on Holy Week that I ended up giving. Um, like, nothing to do with it. Um, I don't know. I like the one I did in person better. Just talking to a microphone is very different from talking to an actual audience. And I like the latter a lot better. Um, let's see. Well, as always, email me with any support suggestions for future topics, any comments, any questions, any guest ideas, or really whatever you want. And my email is very easy. It's thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. Give me an email. Let me know um, that you're listening, where you're listening from, how you found me, anything else. All right. So this is the defense of the tradition of the church and the teaching authority. This is not a defense of the current magisterium, what it's saying or not saying or whatever. We have an episode that kind of covers some of those things. It's not a defense of what the people in power are currently doing because, quite frankly, I have no idea what they're up to. I don't know what Pope Francis says. I don't know what the bishops are doing. And um, most of the time I don't want to know and I don't think I need to care or should care. If you listen to a lot of church news, you're probably hearing all sorts of terrible things going on. And from what I can tell from other Catholic podcasts, this really gets people distressed. So knock it off. Don't do it. Same goes for secular news. You don't have to know about all the bad things going on in the world. In fact, that's one of the weirdest things that you can possibly have inhabit your mind. It's never happened in the history of the world that everybody knows about all the worst things happening in the entire world. No, if there's something you can do, Sure, know about it. Um, but if it's entirely out of control and it's just going to disturb your soul, 
then stop. All right. Do, 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 do. Yeah, so if you want a lot of details on the on tradition and particularly on like the, the Pope, church authority, things like that, I would suggest a fellow named Swan Sona. Also, I believe Joe Heschmeyer has some good stuff on this too. Both of those are going to do a better job defending it than I will here. That said, I think all of these musings and the more abstract about the tradition and church authority um, – will be a really good supplement to their work, which is more um, scriptural and historical. All right. I think I already said all right and implied that I was going to begin. That was a false start, but this is the real one. I'd like to point out that all Christians, Protestant and Catholic, can agree that God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and that Jesus was body and soul, human and divine. So it should come as absolutely no surprise to anyone that his act of self-revelation comes in two ways, scripture and tradition, matter and form. To reject either is to reject Christ, the same evil spirit who whispers that Jesus was really just a man also whispers that scripture stands alone. Satan hates nothing quite as much as he hates the Incarnation, and he seeks to stop it, twist it, and obscure it at every turn. He's just as victorious when he deceives people into denying Christ's material, fleshly body and blood in the Eucharist, as when he fools those same people into accepting the written material scriptures as the Word of God to the exclusion of the immaterial form that we call tradition. Satan wishes to flatten reality to either matter or spirit. He doesn't really care which one. Protestants make a mistake when imagining tradition as simply oral knowledge, whereas, um, whereas scripture, which is written, is just the written knowledge. Sometimes Protestants might put the challenge this way. Hey, Catholics, you claim that you have this oral tradition, this other means of knowing. Why don't you just write it down for us? But I think that misunderstands what we mean by tradition when the church says it. You can no more write down the tradition of the church than you could write down the skill in a carpenter's hands or the excellence in the moves of a wrestler. A word that might better capture what we as Catholics mean when we say tradition is wisdom, or as the Jews call it, chokmah, or as the Romans call it, erite. I think I said that right. Actually, I think I didn't. Or even as the um, our Eastern friends call it, Kung Fu doesn't just relate to fighting. It means a mastery, a applied knowledge, a wisdom, an excellence. Now, my claim is that wisdom is always contextual. Wisdom is always in the mind of an intellective creature, and it's never reducible to a page or a formula. Now, yes, it's true. The Bible contains wisdom. In fact, if you have a Catholic Bible, you have a book called Wisdom. But look at the way it does it. Here's a passage from uh, Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs 28. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Next verse. <clears throat> Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. You see what it did? Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Line of the next verse. 
answer a fool according to his folly. So what does this mean? Does it mean that it contradicts itself? No, not really. Does it mean that that's, it, one of these is wrong? Well, no, not that either. Both of these are knowledge. Both of these are true. But what it's trying to give you is the material for you to then put into practice. It's meant to make you wise. So both of these can be the right answer. But the page can't tell you. You have to incorporate this into yourself, live it, understand it. Have it dwell in you. You know, David talks about meditating on the law of God day and night. Now, he doesn't do that in order to just learn a set of facts or possess a group of knowledge, but instead to incorporate the words of God into his heart so that his life reflects a lived and contextualized understanding of God's word. You may have heard the old joke, that knowledge is knowing the tomato, that a tomato is a fruit. But wisdom is knowing not to put it into a fruit salad. I think this is actually spot on. If I was to put it in another way, it might be something like this. Wisdom is knowledge with a telos. The knowledge of the tomato, combined with the end of making a fruit salad to the satisfaction of one's would-be diners, means that this tomato must be excluded in a more religious context, knowledge is knowing that the scripture prohibits charging on, of interest on loans. But wisdom knows the telos of the commandment and uses the knowledge in context. Wisdom is nimble, adaptive. It reproves the fool, and then it doesn't. It binds and it looses. And yet, it's nonetheless true. Let me give a few examples of material versus formal, or scripture versus tradition, in scenarios regarding my own life. I was in chef training at a restaurant. In fact, in a couple of restaurants, I've spent a week or two here and there as the acting chef. And I can assure you, um, being a chef is so much fun. Consider it. You'll like it. Um, at one point, one of my favorite ever chefs, Chef Mickey, was teaching me how to make shrimp scampi. Now, of course, I knew what ingredients were in it. And I suppose I could have gotten a recipe and tried it. But standing side by side, this chef, and making it with him, helped me to learn it in a whole new way. There's no way to write down the flick of the pan or the burn of the alcohol as you tip it up towards the gas burner. There's no way to write down the look, the feel, the smell, the way it bubbles. A recipe is reductionist, abstracted, simplified. It's like the relation of a map to the territory. If the map truly was identical, it would cease being a map and it would just be the territory. You would be exploring the territory and not a map. Learning to make this simple dish was a transfer of wisdom, not just knowledge. It was skill, hokma, erte. It allowed me to make a little shrimp scampi, or a lot, to make it fast, to make it slow, to substitute ingredients, or to put my own spin on things. It was knowledge with telos, knowledge embodied and understood. It was tradition. So let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine that Jesus started a restaurant, not a church. 
He left an infallible cookbook, not a Bible. What would this look like? Well, one thing I would suggest is that there would be a secession from the original chefs who learned from, from Christ. And that they wouldn't just throw people in charge and give them a cookbook. Instead, they would train them, just like Chef Mickey trained me. I would also suggest that each restaurant, as they spread throughout the world, would have to accommodate to the local ingredients and the local palates. Not in a way which violates that cookbook, but in a way that imbues it with an end, that combines the knowledge with a telos in a way that only a rational creature can in the context of a mission, in the context of others. I would also suggest that, um, sure, there would be conformity to the infallible cookbook. And I think that's what we see in the church. I think we see all those things. Another thing we could expect is some chefs that would fail. <laughs> Trust me, I know that. I fired some. Um, and I think we see priests and bishops, even popes that fail. But that doesn't violate the fact that they were part of a tradition. Or even that there's an authority that rests on their office. It does. Let me point something else out. If the greatest restaurant today in the world just printed up and handed out all their recipes, would others be able to compete? If others failed, would it just be because they needed a more complete cookbook? Well, I would say no. I think there's more going on than just that reductionist group of ingredients. I think that's a materialist, atheistic uh, way to view the world. You can't compete with the great restaurants in the world just if you know what's in their, in, in their recipes. You need that knowledge, that skill, that living tradition that only comes from a secession. Let me give you another example. When I was in high school, my brother and I had late 80s Mitsubishi Monteros, well, and the badge-engineered version called the Dodge Raider. They literally broke at every turn. We had to pull the entire engine out, not once, not twice, but three times. Neither of us knew much of anything about cars at the time, so we got the Hayden's Manual, which is basically the Bible for fixing our trucks. This was based on a full rebuild of the entire car and offers a step-by-step -step set of instructions to fix and replace literally everything. Now, was this a help to us? Well, of course it was. Yet, it had to be applied. Sometimes the picture didn't really look like what we were actually seeing in our case. Sometimes the terms were unfamiliar. It called for tools and techniques that we might not have had. You see, the book was no substitute for having a wise and experienced mechanic with us, as was best illustrated by the explosion of our newly rebuilt engine as I was cresting a hill, leaving shrapnel all over the road. You see, we cold-pressed the wrist pins. That's a big no-no. Later, an old wise mechanic told us that when the book said to press in the wrist pins, what that means in context, for us, means that we should have thrown the wrist pins in the freezer overnight and heated the rod gently, and then they would have just slipped together. Now, maybe the book should have said that. Maybe we could write a recipe so detailed that Chef Mickey's shrimp scampi is recreatable everywhere. 
Maybe. But scripture? It tells us that all the books of the world could not have recorded Christ's words and deeds. So is it lost to history, only to be recovered at the end of time when he comes back? Well, no, I don't think so. The church is Christ's body. It's fed by and drawn into Christ through the sacraments, particularly through the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. One of my favorite verses of all time is this. I believe it comes from Isaiah. It goes, come, this is God speaking in this, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash them white as snow. We are meant to reason about the things of God with God. The place of meeting of God and man is the place of reason, the logos, Jesus, the one who washes us white as snow with his precious blood. So what does all this mean? It means that there's a place where we can possess the wisdom of God, and that place is Christ's body, the church. It means that tradition must always must always be embodied, must always have been passed down and maintained in union with God. The matter-form nature of revelation entails a community in union with God in the person of Jesus Christ. It must be found in the same place as the sacraments because the sacraments are the precondition for the possession of God's wisdom, the type of reasoning that Isaiah is talking about. Now, I've heard the objection that the church defines doctrines either for a reason drawn from Scripture, as the records of the councils imply, or else it does so arbitrarily, and such declarations are just declarations by fiat, exercises of power or papal prerogative, and as such have grounding in really nothing other than themselves. And if this declaration is grounded in Scripture, well, then all of the church's power is simply derivative of Scripture, and if it's just by fiat, well, there's no reason to be right at all. At least, so goes the argument. Now, amongst the many issues with this type of critique, I'll point out two. One, we could ask the same question of Scripture. Is there a reason for the claims made in Scripture? Or is it simply by fiat? I think we would say that there is a reason. And the reason, ultimately, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ would say that he says all that he gets from the Father. So ultimately, it's the Father. But if this argument really means that authority is not vested in each one of these levels just because there's a reason which somehow comes prior, well, then that violates the authority of Scripture, which this argument is meant to defend. And it also it seems to counter the claim of Christ that all authority under heaven and earth is given to him. Now, if we take it the other way and simply say, all right, I'll take your argument. Sure, everything is ultimately der derivative of God, then in a narrow way, <laughs> I guess we're just saying yes to one fork of the dilemma and identifying that as something like the fourth way of Thomas Aquinas, whereby all truth is made true, um, because truth is derivative of being, and being is 
ultimately from God because his essence is his existence. He's pure essay, unbounded being himself, and therefore the grounding of all truth and the cause of all truth, the maximum of the genus of truth, in fact. So if it's just making that claim, then yeah, God causes all truth. If it's making the claim that it's trying to deny the authority of each individual level because there's a level prior, no, that's certainly wrong because that denies the teaching authority of Christ and of Scripture itself, which they're trying to defend. Um, and then, well, let's go on to a second reason I don't like this argument. It reminds me of an argument I used to make as a Calvinist when I would argue against free will. You see, I argued something like this. If anybody makes any choice whatsoever, it's either because there is a, a reason, a cause for them to make that decision, or there was not. And of course, this covers all situations, just like I could name all colors by saying pink and not pink, law of the excluded middle. But what we would call no cause is just random. And if somebody makes a decision for no cause, it's just random random, well then it doesn't seem to be will. So it can't be free will because your will isn't included. The reason for your making the decision is just, well, there's no reason. It's random. So if we go that way, we can't have free will because we can't have will. But if we go the other way, I don't see how it can be free. You see, if there's always a reason for somebody making that decision, in that thing, had a cause, an adequate reason for that thing to be the reason. And there was a reason behind that and behind that and behind that, you know, going on eventually to God. Well, how is it free? Because it wasn't really you that made the decision. You were just the last domino in a sequence. There was a reason exactly for this. It was deterministic. And therefore, in either case, reason or no reason, it seems to, devi to violate either the freedom or the will. And therefore, we cannot have free will. That was my argument. And what dissuaded me of that was learning more about the Aristotelian notion of substance and causal powers that flow from these substances. You see, let's take the, 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 the idea that there's always a reason. Well, if that were true, then either there must be an infinite amount of intermediate causes or else we affirm that there are indeed discrete causes. So if you imagine each one of these reasons for the reasons or causes of that cause as a little dot, well, do we have dots in between those dots? If not, we're just jumping from one dot across something completely empty to the next. So it would seem that that just is the cause of the next. But if we say that there is always a cause of each individual thing deterministically, then we're implying an infinite amount of reasons in between each one of these dots, in between each one of these causes. This is kind of like an, an analog versus a, a digital group of, of causes, if you will. But... Um, we can't have an infinite amount of intermediate causes between two things. Why? Well, because you could never traverse that infinite group. This is like Zeno's paradox, right? So we're forced to accept discrete causes, which just, by nature of what they are, can cause something else. But if we can do that, then 
on what principle do we define one thing as an individual cause and then another thing as an individual cause? Well, there's a good answer for that, and that is what substantial form that thing has. Because the form is the principle of actuality, the variability to be a cause in the first place. So that helped me out of that dilemma where I saw that, okay, we have this substance causality. Where on earth was I going with that? Ah. So, all right. So maybe I've convinced you of the twofold nature of the revelation of Christ. And maybe you accept that wisdom is only in the mind of rational beings and exercised in context, that wisdom is knowledge with the telos, and that telos implies a mind. And I hope you see how union with God through Christ by means of the sacraments is necessary for properly ordered reasoning about the things of God. If you disagree with the Catholic view of the Eucharist, which I've been talking about here, then go back and listen to the three-part um, episode. I like that one. Again, it's one of my favorites. So now I think our question turns a little bit. Where are the sacraments found? I would say that the whole history of Christianity and of Judaism, for that matter, agrees. It's in the visible hierarchical church. No invisible church will do. The invisible notion, while true in part, is wrong in the same way that the devil would suggest for the divinity of Christ or the nature of the Eucharist, sola scriptura, or even contemporary issues like the possibility of artificial intelligence to have real reasoning abilities, or the ability of a person to define their body's reality out of existence. Satan wishes to flatten reality, to reduce it, to cut you off from either the body or the soul, because either one of those means death. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and wishes to divide body and soul to this day. Above all, he wishes the church, Christ's body, dead. An invisible church without a visible hierarchy is as dead as Christ was when his soul descended into hell and his body laid in the tomb. I call for a resurrection. The flesh profits nothing, but the spirit gives life. Sit down with the lies that flatten and reduce. Salvation is found in offering our whole selves to God, who offered his whole self to us. So that's my appeal. That, there's, that you're just asking for death if you cut body and soul apart. That's what we call death. It's when your soul leaves the body. And that tradition is the soul, and the written scripture is the body. Satan wants to kill it. Satan wants to kill you. Satan wants to destroy the church. But he can't. That means these two are united and they'll always be united. They're united in the sacraments. They're united in Christ's body. In Christ's body here on earth, we call the church. And that's my argument. I know, it comes in a different form. It doesn't reference the normal things, but that's because better people than I make those arguments. When I was looking at becoming Catholic, the two things which, which hit me most were the part about uh, Jesus affirming the Pharisees' ability to teach because they sat in the seat of Moses. 
That's one that I didn't hear from a Catholic apologist or anything. I just stumbled across it in my Bible, and it threw me for a loop. Um, before I was even considering uh, Catholicism, I was grappling with what on earth this meant. You see, Moses was far and away the greatest person of the Old Testament. He he talked to God as if like a friend. He would go and stand in the tent of meeting. He went up and got the law from God that God wrote on tablets with his own finger. He led the people out of Egypt. He brought down the plagues. He struck the stone and brings forth water. He leads the people into the promised land. Nobody is like Moses. How do you get greater than Moses? And it's Moses' authority that becomes the authority of Joshua to lead the people. And then on down, even to the time of Christ, where the Pharisees held this teaching authority. And yet, Moses says something. I believe it's in Exodus. Yes. He says, one day a prophet like me will arise. Listen to him. What? I think it might have even said greater. Um, But the idea that there's somebody other than Moses coming that we have to listen to that's going to arise in the future, that we should listen to him? Well, this was always a puzzling verse up and down the centuries before Christ, and it's fulfilled in Christ. So this prophet that arises is Jesus, the only person who's greater than Moses, because although Moses was, was close to God, Jesus is God. So if we affirm that there can indeed be a line of secession which grants real authority from Moses, how much more would there be a line of secession that grants real authority from Jesus Christ? Now the next one is that we see a rule of the apostles in Scripture. We find that they declare things um, binding for the church in council, and that this seems to continue on through history. There is never a point that this is disputed or debated. That, that is the structure of the church. So when we look at other churches, say the Baptist or Presbyterian, and we find that it's in radical discontinuity with the church of Acts, with the church of the apostles, well, it seems to lack the authority which stems from the seed of Jesus Christ. And if so, how exactly is it a church? All the way back in, um, is it Exodus again? Probably. I need to reread Exodus. All the way back in Exodus, there's the rebellion of Korah. And Korah says to Moses, How dare you exalt yourself above the assembly of God? Are we not all holy? Are we not a priestly people? Are we not all priests? And I hear that echoed in the Protestant tradition, that it seems arrogant that the Catholic Church says, we are the leaders of the church, we are the shepherd of the flock, 
that we hold the authority which was of the binding and loosing that was given to us by Christ himself. Well, doesn't it sound like the church is exalting itself above the people of God as if somehow they're the only holy ones? Doesn't scripture say that we're all priests? Well, yes, it does. And indeed, Moses affirms, um, I think just two chapters later, um, chapter 17, that they are, they're a holy people, a priestly nation. So they're right about that. But what they're tragically wrong about is that because the people are holy, because the people are priests, that means that they can usurp the authority given to God, or given by God to Moses. Um, so that's, that's the sin I see today in Protestantism. It's the rebellion of Korah. We're not trying to say that the Catholic Church, the people in it are more holy. Oh, heavens no. Um, and we're not saying that there isn't a priesthood of all believers. Of course there is. We know that. We are saying that there's a seat that, uh, that's a teaching authority that persists and that we need it and that it's necessary and that it's part of the revelation of Christ because Christ came to us as human and divine, as matter and form. And that to know him, to reason with God, means to do it with our whole selves, matter and form, spirit and body. To have knowledge, but to have wisdom. All right. Well, if you have any questions, email me. Of course, um, I think I might do an uh, episode soon on stagflation or inflation or monetary policy in general, because I don't think I've done an economic episode. Um, we seem to be heading for a stagflation event where basically we have the economy slowing and inflation increasing. And that's really bad. <laughs> that's not going to be fun. Um, it seems hopeless. And with current people in charge, um, yeah, it's hopeless. We're just going for it. But there's certainly some ways out, and I want to give a, a few suggestions. Uh, just as a bit of a primer, um, well, imagine this. We have an economy with $100 of actual dollars in it and $100 of goods that were produced. Well, each good, let's say it costs a dollar. This is very simple, right? Well, now we inflate it. And we have 200 total dollars. Well, oh no, we have 100% inflation. But there's a way to avoid this inflation, and that is growth. Because if the economy could soak up that inflation by doubling its output, well then we'd have $200 of goods and services and $200 in existence. And look at that, we have stable prices. So I want to offer a few suggestions about how we could expand economic output to soak up some of this inflation. Um, and then also talk about the slightly more painful way, and that's just pull the dollars back out of existence. Um, that's what we're kind of aiming for right now. Um, uh, one of the ways that happens is bankruptcy, where loans go out of existence as dollars um, – make them uh, disappear. I know that sounds crazy, but basically when you make a loan, new dollars come into existence and go into the economy. And then on the bank's books, there's a loan. 
So to get dollars out of the economy, well, you could pay back that loan. And those dollars come out of the economy. They get extinguished when they hit the loan, which is kind of their equal and opposite reaction. And then we hit deflation. Now, bankruptcy forces the repaying of these loans. And even if they don't actually have enough money to do it, it just might take a discount, say, pay back 80%. The loan disappears, and then the 80% of the cash that was originally created now goes out of existence. This is a totally healthy process that will get prices back in line and one that we should not stop. So if we see companies starting to go under, and bankruptcy starting to occur, what we need and what is good, what is healthy, and what will reverse the tide of inflation is for these to follow the normal course of bankruptcy and have um, and uh, pay back those loans with their assets. Those assets will then be recycled to places where they will be more productive, and the world goes round and round. But this is not the episode on that. This was the episode on church authority and tradition. Um, the necessity for a real visible church. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, um, if you did in fact enjoy it, uh, and if you have friends and if you like sharing, share it with your friends. And if you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies. Um, we're ticking up a little bit, partially because of our shout out on the Classical Theism podcast with John DeRosa. Um, if you haven't checked out that podcast, do it. It's awesome. Um, I've learned so much from that, and I'm actually a researcher for that podcast, so I support it in a variety of ways. Well, I'll talk to you next time.